Hello, everyone. My name is Suki Thompson. Welcome to Reset, the podcast, a place for you to get some inspiration and advice to help you live a more fulfilling work life. I do hope that your journey to feel more connected, more inspired, just a bit more energized starts here. Take a moment now with me to reset. In my conversation this week, we deep dive into a sensation we all know really well, but often fail to truly understand, uncertainty. I had the real pleasure of sitting down with Sam Conniff and Catherine Templer-Lewis, otherwise known as the Uncertainty Experts, who, as their name would suggest, are some of the leading authorities on the topic of uncertainty. They're bonded by mutual interest in understanding human behaviour, as well as their own personal habits. Catherine and Sam share their stories about what led them to becoming experts in this space and the resets which have shaped them along the way. And there are some really fascinating stories and quite challenging environments that they've been in. Our discussion brilliantly simplifies what uncertainty is and how it impacts us all and why it makes us feel the way it does. It's an area that I am really fascinated by. Um, and the real power of the conversation, however, comes from their insight into not only how we can better understand uncertainty as a series of fear, fog and stasis, but how we can use it as a superpower to learn, adapt and absorb our surroundings to really unlock our potential. Within this conversation, they give us some tips and tricks and hacks to refrain how we think about and even feel the sensation, including reconnecting our body and mind and practicing something called radical gratitude. You can listen to me learning this technique with a pen. And if I wasn't excited before, I now really cannot wait to see the uncertainty experts at work at our Power Up Festival on Thursday, the 19th of May, where they're gonna deliver a workshop to take the power of uncertainty to the next level. I really hope that we'll see you there. If you haven't got your ticket yet, look at the link below um, or DM me through my social media. Oh, and if you could do one thing, if you would sign up, just click the sign up button uh, next to this podcast. It makes an awful lot of difference. And um, we're going to be giving out some free tickets to either come to the Power Up Festival or to listen virtually. So it's probably worth it for you too. Many thanks. Bye. Catherine, hi Sam, so great to see you today. Um, how are you both? I'm very well actually, um, just to come out of the bank holiday weekend feeling pretty good about things. What about you Sam? Uh, hello Suki, hello Catherine. I'm also feeling quite happy, uh, which sure. is good because you so know. If I asked you on a scale of ten, uh, one to ten, how energised do you feel? Sam, what would your number be? Uh, mentally, it'd be at a 10. I think the world's feeling pretty exciting right now. Physically, it's a bit more like a 7 because I might have had too much fun at the weekend. 
What about you, Catherine? Good answer. Oh, I think I might go the other way around. I think um, I think physically I'm feeling quite quite good actually. Yeah, I had a really good weekend. Had lots of rest and fun. But I think mentally, I think I've sort of hit that. You know, it's May. The the year is suddenly careering out of control. You know, rather than losing days, I'm losing weeks out of control. Um, and perhaps that sort of like that pressure to, to be back on it right now because we've sort of come out of this pandemic. Um, so I think mentally my cognitive load is, is pretty high. <laughs> ah, good. Well, we might talk a little bit more about that because I think lots of actually interesting, Catherine, I think lots of people are feeling like you. But um, Sam, I'm sure a number of people are feeling like you after bank holiday. It's so nice, so close to Easter, isn't it? Get another break. Um so today we're going to talk about uncertainty and and a little bit more and you know because you've both got fascinating careers you've done amazing things and I'm very excited that you're both going to be with us at the Power Up Festival on May the 19th um, and you know one of our partners we're, we're very excited about that and I'm particularly interested in uncertainty I think for, for two reasons actually one because when we look at the Let's Reset seven needs of well-being and performance our first, and it's based loosely on Maslow's hierarchy of needs adapted by the psychologist, but the first one is security and that kind of uncertainty piece links there. And, I, and I'm fascinated to talk a bit more about that because it is one that not many people, I think, think about deeply enough. They kind of go, oh, I'm secure in work or I'm not. I'm secure at home or I'm not, but they don't really talk about it much more. Um, and, then, and then I did your test. So we'll talk about that a little bit later on, because that I think made me feel quite good. But um, I think I've rationalised why. Uh, but we could talk on, on, on that a, a bit later as well. But I'd like to start with both of you, because Catherine, can I start with you? You know, you're a scientist. Um, you're also a posh person because you talk about how to how to hold a cup of tea and all sorts of exciting things like that. And people like the Queen. Um, how? Tell me briefly, how did you become a scientist and how do you know how to drink a cup of tea in front of the Queen? Well, well it is all sort of related. Um, I suppose sort of the red thread that goes through it all is, is two things, really. My sort of love of humans and sort of social life and how we are social and, and work in groups. And my second thing is my fascination with the brain um, and how amazing and somehow and sometimes actually sort of, you know, quite counterintuitive it can be. So I, I became a scientist. I studied uh, science from well I wanted to go to drama school when I was 18 my mom said outright no um, so I, I sort of went off to do science because no one in my family did that I was lucky enough to do it at Oxford um, and fell in love with it I fell in love with, with studying humans and, and how they acted and how they worked and how bizarre they were and how wonderful they could be um, and that led to my postgrad in into the psychology and cognitive neuroscience I did jump ship and went to drama school uh, secretly, my mum thought I was completing a PhD, um, and I wasn't. I was a tap dancing around the place, uh, and but then science really called me back. I was just so fascinated by this sort of interplay between sort of creativity and humans, and so aware that so much of the science I'd been studying in the lab never got into the real world and wasn't sort of being applied. Um, and so I really sort of made it my mission to study more. And I, I have a female that connects creatives and, and scientists. And I do my own research as a goldsmith and UCL, but also have one foot in the world of how can we apply this? And one of those reasons was sort of psychology and what happens when we are around other people. And one big thing that, that we need to do, I really believe is be considerate of other people. And that led to a whole sort of chapter of my life 
writing courses for um, for Debrett and all these amazing people on a sort of consideration and that sort of manners and things like that. Um, before I came back to my love of the brain and why we worry so much. <laughs> ah, that's lovely. Oh, how interesting. Well, um, my mum did let me go to, to drama school, so I did it the other way around. I went to drama school, then I did a business master's. Brilliant. Um, yeah, and then and then psychology has been something that I've become much more passionate and studied in kind of later in my business career. So, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I do think it's all linked. So, yeah. I do think, and do you know what? Every day, I think all of the stuff that I've done is so linked, particularly now more than ever. And you get to a moment in your career, don't you, where you go, oh, that's how that all links together. That's perfect. Yeah. Um, Sam, you are an entrepreneur. You've done a lot of work in business. You've done a lot of work with, with young people as well. Tell us a little, what, what was your life like when you were young? Um, it's interesting hearing you both speak. It's that line, isn't it? I can't remember who it is. It's probably Steve Jobs. But, you know, you can only join the dots of life looking backwards and and suddenly you do see how it all adds up. Uh, I've, I've always liked making things or and trying to fix things. And my life growing up was thrown somewhat by the death of my dad and not really fully understanding or appreciating the psychological impact of that. And it's only much later um, I realised the early days of my life, you know, pictures of me as a teenager, a bit confused. I was wearing a second dodgy secondhand suits and uh, I started my first business as a teenager and I was permanently trying to be more of a grown-up and fulfill this kind of role without really being aware of it. And so I left home pretty early on. Education really wasn't for me. And I was doing my own thing by my early 20s. And my first business started when I was 21, there or thereabouts. I was running nightclubs and raves and having all manner of all the fun. Uh, and I was earning money and like <clears throat> had a flat and it was great. Uh, and it increasingly would just kind of every now and then career out of control um, and end up in death threats and, and you know, real big problems. Uh, but bit by bit, each time I came back, you know, something new formed and emerged and these nightclubs turned into a thing called Don't Panic and then Don't Panic turned into something really beautiful and then Don't Panic turned into Liberty. And, you know, I can see this really you know, it feels, you can look at it like I've done lots of different things, but they're just a continuation to me of the same kind of thing. And it was always born from that space of my youth. And on one hand, trying to fix, I'm a real sucker for unfairness and I can't really walk past the fight. Um, but at the same time, this act of making, like knowing that's where I really enjoy myself. And again, it's what's got me to this point of uncertainty. When you do go over the edge and knowing how itchy I get real itchy feet when things become too much the same. So it's kind of a, a, a quest of trying to fix other people, realising in my 30s I was trying to fix myself. Um, and and that that need for, I don't know, adventure might say it makes it sound a bit romantic, but but the creative and, and problem-solving part of me. Gosh. Uh, what age did your dad die? He was 42. I was five. Oh, five, wow. There's um, I interviewed a number of, actually last year, Lord Conan Moynihan and his father died actually I think when he was nine um and they did a, they did a piece of I mean you probably know this actually um but they did a piece of work on the number of politicians and business leaders that had um particularly a father dying but also a mother dying when they were young so they were under 15 and there's a there's a massive index in in people who have been very successful um, where they've lost a parent very young in their life. Um, Catherine, you, you probably would know the reason behind that. But um, I think, it, do you find that that moment of 
well, I guess massive uncertainty and a, and a huge reset for you um, gave you that first, even though you perhaps didn't know it at the time, gave you that first understanding and insight into what uncertainty meant, Sam? My <clears throat> mentor throughout the last few years is a guy called Liam Black, and he's like kind of godfather of the social enterprise world. Uh, he helped Jamie Oliver set up 15 and things. And, and he's pointed me to the same research and says it, it doubles in the space of social enterprise because it's not just that idea that you want to fix something or you need to kind of exact and, and going back to Maslow, you know, get to some kind of sense of who you are. Um, uh, if you say, he says, show me a social entrepreneur and I'll, I'll show you someone with parent, father issues. And it's exactly in that kind of space. And I, no, I think the, the trouble with is because you believe the world when you're little. And so I believed this completely out of kilter story. I believed it. And then that meant with every transition through the generations of my life, I passed that story forward. And so I believed that I was responsible and I believed that there was a gap and it was upon me to fill it. And I believed that I could bridge the space of kind of emotional stability in my family. And I believed that I you know, had a hand in all of these things. I really fucking didn't. Yeah, I had no control over my mum's happiness. I had no way of rewinding time. There was no chance I could have stepped into that space, but at five, I thought I could. And so when I was going to secondary school, I kind of thought I could, and those hangovers came through me. So yeah, obviously there's a part of you that's like massively disproportionately believes I can have a role in the world and that other people's emotions are my responsibility and I need to go around fixing them, which is both liberating because you have this real sense that you can do more and be more and then fucking exhausting because like, I don't want all that stuff. No, no, no. Oh, gosh, interesting. Um, Catherine, so just on from that, for people who are now listening going, wow, okay, this has gone, this has gone quite deep already. What does uncertainty mean and how does it impact us? Oh, that's a great question. Well, I mean, it means a lot of things to different people, but I think the, the key thing that, that's really come out of all the research we've done is that uncertainty is emotional. Um, and we define it as the unknown. And whenever I think of uncertainty, I think of it, you know, neuroscience is, is my great drive. And I, I think of, of how our brain responds. And it's interesting listening to Sam's story, because of course, he's very right. Your brain doesn't know the game until the game is played. And so when you grow up, things happen to you or throughout your entire life, things happen to you that are either expected or unexpected. And our brains really are these prediction machines, um, but they start with no knowledge of what the game is. And so all through your life, you start to have these experiences and things like that that, that feed the, these predictions you're going to make. And the thing our brain hates more than anything is uncertainty because it feels so unsafe. And when things go wrong and things don't go as predicted, your brain doesn't know how to keep you safe. The rules of the game have just changed. The sort of the model of the world around you has just changed. Um, and what sort of, and what this has really driven all the research we've been doing is this can be a terrifying place. We are human. You know, you will never not feel a certain amount of fear faced with the unknown. However, we also have this default in our brain to be able to survive this because the world is inherently unknown. And so, our, you know, we are evolved to be creatures of the unknown. And whilst we love to predict things, we also have this, this ability in the unknown um, to be at our best, to be hyper-present, hyper-absorbent, to adapt, to be agile. But it really comes down to how well we can use our brain as a tool in the unknown. And that really was the sort of the basis of, of what, what we started to try and do. You know, I am the most highly anxious person ever. 
Um, someone said if there was the, the collective name for me, it would be an anxious of Catherine's, like a herd of cows. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I also know the brain is a tool. And I think much of my work has been driven by this, by this idea, how can we be at, be at our best in this uncertain, this unknown world? Um, and, you know, I love that you go back to Maslow's need because it does come about how can we feel safe in this world as well? Yeah, yeah. So, Sam, because of your childhood and then you know, you, were, you were an entrepreneur at a really young age, do you then have, if you, when you do your scoring about, um, you know, how much you can cope with uncertainty, do you score, well, it's, it's a low score you want, don't you? Because it's out of 90 and you need a low score. Do you score very low? Are you the opposite to Catherine? Because you've coped with so much uncertainty in your youth. Does that mean that you, that you can cope with more? Um. Yeah, Catherine's, there's a few people who've done this and they just have like this extraordinarily good uh, score. And I, mine isn't as good as I think it would be. And I, and I think that's why I've been led to this work, because even though I've gone through it and experienced quite a lot, I don't think I've always learned my lessons. You know, my dad, my stepdad now says he thinks that everybody just has this one mistake and they just keep going around the mistake their whole lives until they work out what the mistake is. And I think I'm, I, I oscillate around this a little bit more. And it's why I was addicted. I have a bit of an addictive behavior, full stop. Um, but I was addicted to my life at Liberty. And I, and I loved the world of being an agency because every day you were presented with a new problem to solve. And it's in that space that I found myself incredibly happy. That was my problem. Like I liked to solve the problem. I didn't like it when it was safe. I love getting a kit. Like when I was a kid, I loved Lego and then be immensely bored with it when it's done. And, and that's not, necessarily you know it's useful for some things but it's not how to have a long-term relationship you know there's lots of parts of that that I'm trying to unpick as I get older and work out who I am and same with running a business and I know this when I was running Liberty when things started to go really well I was a really problematic CEO because I'd like go looking for problems to solve because there's that space right when you're 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 on the brink of the brief you've got really smart people around you and you're on the crest of a new idea and it's the, that to me is an addictive spot. That's very exciting. That 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 new yeah, territory, and when you get to go there, that's not something you know. That's the act of creation. It's a rather wonderful thing to to get to spend any of your life in doing. But to go there, you have to get to the to the edge, and that's a pretty scary place as well. And so when I met Catherine, she explained to me that the brain recognizes fear and excitement in exactly the same way this really spoke to my experience and why I constantly want to be on the brink of somewhere that I find quite, quite I find personally and emotionally quite exhausting uh, amount of investment to make as well. I, I, I love the fact that you bring up that point about fear and excitement being so similar, uh, you know, and all the side. And, and for me, um, you know, for somebody who went to drama school, I used to get incredibly nervous about going on stage. And then, you know, my life since has been, particularly in the last, I don't know, 10 years, all about presenting. You know, most of my agency time. And then since I ran a consultancy, I've done a lot. Um, and it wasn't until somebody said exactly that to me that I went from being so fearful of standing on stage. I was always absolutely fine. The second I'm on stage speaking and then I come off, brilliant. But, you know, literally being sick almost every time I did something live was yeah. just exhausting. And then I just trained my brain and it's been amazing. So, Catherine, why are we able to train our brain to kind of cope with uncertainty? Because it doesn't really go away, does it? But we can. Is it, is it all about that? Is it about the kind of rewiring of your brain to, to make it a positive for us? 
Yeah, absolutely. And when we talk a lot about, you know, uncertainty becoming a technology for exploring possibility, you know, and that's the sort of the goal that we want to be at our best and, and knowing that actually we can be at our, we can be better in uncertainty than we can at any other time if we just know how to embrace it. And I think, you know, these are things that we weren't taught at school. You know, I haven't really ever used a quadratic equation, but, but what I could have done with is someone teaching me how to cope with my emotions and what would happen when I was in, in the unknown. We, we get used to being within our comfort zones because our brain goes, oh, good, that's safe. I know what's going to happen. That's great, but probably the same thing is going to happen that, that happened the day before, you know, and if we really want to sort of push ourselves as human beings, we need to be able to em embrace that space of possibility. And, you know, Sam mentioned fear and excitement are the same in the brain. It is a nervous system response. It's a heightened response. Uh, the difference is what you think is going to happen. That's why some people love roller coasters, because they know they're fine and not, nothing bad's going to happen. And some people, you know, nearly die of, of fear because they think it's going to go off the rails. Um, and really, when uncertainty sort of rears its head, we have this response, which we've reduced um, in our research to, to fear, fog and stasis. And that's what you go through. You go through this fear response and then you feel this sort of fog of confusion where things don't match up. That's your prediction range. And then you get stuck. You can't move forward. And what was sort of, I think, the best thing to come out of this research, and, you know, when Sam contacted me, he was talking to these incredible people um, who had gone through incredible, um, you know, scenarios through their lives. And what we wanted to do was look at why, how they were using their brain differently, what, how they were wired differently um, to be able to face uncertainty. And could we all learn that? And the answer is yes. You know, you, you took the, the test, which we talked about, and everybody can change on that scale how good they are at, at being tolerant to uncertainty. Um, and it's sort of really hopeful for everybody. Mm, that's really interesting, isn't it? So uh, I, um, one of our positive psychologists uh, quite some time ago talked to me about post-traumatic growth. And I've talked quite a lot about it through the last couple of years because I think, you know, as, as a global phenomenon, many people have now gone through, and we've all gone through a terribly difficult time, but some people have come out of it in a, in a way that has really propelled them forwards. Some people haven't got there yet. Some people have found it very debilitating and, and haven't been able to cope so well. Um, I, I've talked about this a lot, but I've had cancer for 13 years. So it's something at different times of my life has made a massive impact on me. And, and like you, Sam, this is Let's Reset's my fourth business. So I've had that kind of juxtaposition of growing businesses, coping with quite tricky um, you know, situations of having cancer. But I, I wonder whether for me, that combination enabled my score. And now I'm not saying if I did it in six months time, I might find my scores lower or higher. It would be different. But I wonder whether at the moment, because I've been through quite a lot of change again, that my score was lower than I would have thought because I have gone, look, do you know what? It's all uncertain. So it doesn't really matter because nothing can be worse. And you know what? I didn't die. So there is nothing worse than that. Let's just crack on and we'll all be fine. Is that what you kind of mean by enabling your brain to go, come on, it's okay. It is all right. And you can use this positively and get your score in a different place. Um, to a degree, yes, but there's there's aspects to it. And it's not as it's I wish it was as simple as that, because that's my problem. Like I've gone through all this stuff in life. So really I should be able to face all my new challenges. I'm, I'm entering this new business and yet 
I'm nervous. I'm worried. I'm my, I'm letting my negativity bias get in my way, and I should know better, right? <laughs> yes. I've done this. I should, you know, and it's that really annoying line. If only you could see yourself the way others see you, and then I'd feel really, you know, I'd, I'd love to spend a bit of my life feeling really sure and, you know, arrogantly confident and stuff. And yet I'm the opposite. So that's where we got to these stages that, 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 that Catherine um, mentioned. We asked uh, by the first, once we had a few thousand people go through, about three and a half thousand, we asked everyone what the negative impact of uncertainty was for them. And uh, the clusters of information all came around and could be grouped into fear, Number one thing uncertainty causes is fear. And, and interestingly, it was fear of things changing and fear of things not, fear of change and fear of non-change. Uh, and then this confusion. That's so interesting. So yeah. it's kind of everyone goes, oh, my God, I don't want it to change. But oh, my God, I need it to change. Yeah. Is that what it is? So there's that moment of going, oh, I don't know what to do because I don't want. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Fundamentally, it's a fear of, <clears throat> it's fear of loss. That's what we don't want. Okay. And then there was fog, the confusion, the indecision, no one likes that. And then the stasis, the stuckness. And now it's not that they move in a linear fashion, but the first one is fear. And that's going to trip you up. It's very hard to get, get through that. And so there, is, there are techniques that we've developed, that we've looked at, that Catherine's researched, which can help allay the negative fear response to uncertainty. Once you get past those, that's a kind of basic one-on-one. That's, and that's often still where I am, depending on how scared I am. And then you get into the post-emotional, interesting and intellectual aspects of it, where Catherine's mentioned it, but like this, this very recent Yale study that shows um, there is no state like uncertainty that pushes the brain into an optimum space for learning other than possibly psychedelics. Like it really does make us more malleable and, and ready to learn and adapt and absorb. And then once you, so there, there is this, if you want to consciously, you can choose to embrace uncertainty, knowing it's a technology. It can be used as a technology for exploring possibility, but you can't do that when you're still scared, scared, you know, so there's these stages to the process. And then this, this final stage of, of getting, how do you get through stasis? What we began to look at was even more in depth, you know, emotional tools, you know, embodied tools. How do, how do you make less conscious, but equally accurate decisions? How do we make predictions? How do we make, you know, really deep level decisions? What does gut instinct truly mean? And how do we step into future realms? So there are these three approaches. One is navigating the fear of uncertainty. One is stepping into the creative and, and, and intellectual further abilities of uncertainty. And the third is this, you know, pretty deep version of it. How do we become more instinctive and, you know, connected human beings? And, and they're non-linear, but they do kind of work in a certain order. And yeah. Okay, yeah. I can see that. I can kind of see that. So, Catherine, you, you, Sam just said that there's some things that you can do. Can you give us an example? What are the kind of things that you could do, maybe even just to overcome that fear piece? I mean, the fear is amazing. The first thing is recognizing your fear. You know, we are so disconnected in our from our bodies, really, as a society. You know, we're from you know the sort of splitting of the mind and the body, and the mind being seen to be this rational thing. You know, and and perhaps it's slightly gendered to say, you know, as a woman, we're told to, you know, I run my own business and, and I've always been conscious not to be so emotional. But we know very much that if you knock out the part of someone's brain that feels emotion, they can't make decisions. Our emotions are part of our decision making process. We've just lost touch on how to regulate them. And so when fear appears and everyone we know, no matter how good they are at um, embracing uncertainty, admits they feel fear. The difference being they know that it's just a suggestion and they know how to de-escalate that very, very physical, very real bodily based sort of nervous system, you know, response. You know, everyone has it slightly differently. I get this sort of pain in my chest and some butterflies in my stomach. But once you recognize it, 
then you know it's just your nervous system sort of taking control. And, and the, the key to having clarity is to be able to regulate it. Emotional resilience isn't not feeling emotions, it's regulating them. And, you know, an amazing, um, one of the first actually best ways you can intervene at that point is by breath work and breathing, because we know it's a direct intervention on our nervous system. Um, the second thing is is sort of things like active radical gratitude. And I don't mean just sort of writing a list of things you're grateful for. It's, it's a trick sort of, you know, Navy SEALs use uh, by being radically grateful about things. And there's a sort of wealth of information. What does that mean? What, how can I be radically grateful? Okay, I mean, if you... <laughs> Go on, Sam, give me, a, give me an act of being radically grateful. Okay. Um, have you got something to hand? Actually, you're, you're holding a pen, aren't you? Yeah. Okay, hold the pen. So this is a trick that we learned from an incredible woman called Morgan Godwin. She features in our first episode, which is all around fear. Um, she had a relatively ordinary upbringing, like all of our uncertainty experts do. You'd recognise where they're all from. Um, but then something really terrible happened. Her mum lost work. The family got into a state of disrepair. Morgan had to leave education, go to full-time work. That didn't pan out. Low-level anxiety, reached depression. Morgan's yeah. dabbling around with drugs. At a party, she gives her best friend some recreational drugs he dies as a result she's hauled away and given a 20-year sentence in a maximum mm. security prison this is a woman with low-level anxiety anyway in prison uh surrounded now by women with extraordinary and difficult circumstances uh with 20 years to go right so what the heck now like all of the uncertainty experts whilst they entered into perilous uncertainty that hopefully none of us have to go through they went through it. They learned a series of lessons which rewired them and they went on to become hugely successful. Morgan left prison, having learned languages and law, helped many of her fellow inmates. And as a result, as now a human rights activist, has changed laws in America that are saving thousands of people's lives in the great opioid challenges that are taking place there. And that's what happens with all of our uncertainty experts, be they refugees, prisoners of war, having gone through prison, they, they rewired based on the uncertainty and they now use the tools of uncertainty out in the world. So I got introduced to Morgan Having done my first interviews around this project really early on, it was with uh, ex-young people that I knew through Liberty. And I wrote a piece up on my Medium uh, account called Uncertainty Experts. And it was simply, are there people out there whose daily experience of uncertainty has got more to offer us right now than the normal leadership on display who can barely admit to the fact they don't really know what to do? And I'm not finding that very inspiring. I wrote this piece up and most of the guys that I'd spoken to were people I'd worked with in the justice system. And I did a lot of work there around entrepreneurships. And someone pinged me an article two days later that was the mirror of my article, but it was written by Morgan Godwin. And it was based on her account of uh, life inside because she got released from prison uh, two weeks before lockdown. So we spoke and I asked her how she coped with fear. What was her, what was her mitigating strategy for fear to allow her to learn you know, law and languages in this place of perilous uncertainty? And she spoke of her concept of radical gratitude. So sorry for the backstory. And that brings us back to where we are. Like Catherine says, there's lots of, that's been written about gratitude lists and they're, they're nice, but radical gratitude is something else. So you take your pen. Yeah, Mark. I have a pen for those that, for those that are, yeah. uh, can't see us. Okay, anyone I, listening? We all have a pen now in front of us. I've, I've got my AirPods, it's been interesting to me, a lip balm or something. But Morgan <laughs> used to tell us this and she used to do it with her blankets or a pillow or whatever she had left in her cell. You, you'd leave the experience of prison and all the, the you know, the, the guard who might torture her or where food was coming from or whatever's gone next. She needs to recenter. She needs to go back out, help her other prisoners, continue her studies. So she'd go back and she'd take an everyday object. She'd hold that object closely and then she'd be grateful for it. Now, you're not normally grateful for your pen, Suki, but now try and simulate the feeling of gratitude. You know what gratitude feels like. 
whoever's listening, grab that object. You felt gratitude before in your life. So try and simulate it and project it. This is entire. It sounds really silly and it'll feel daft at first, but you have every ability to do this. Morgan did it and it saved her life. It got her through prison, as Catherine mentioned, but it turns out the Navy SEALs train this. If you focus on that pen and just remember what being grateful feels like and try and project gratitude on the pen, gratitude is an abstract concept and the brain has no idea whether you're really going through something or not. All it feels is those simulations that you've begun to uh, create. And for once, rather than your brain triggering your body, it's going the other direction. You're creating those feelings in your body. They go straight to your brain. Your brain thinks, oh, I'm grateful for something. And it releases dopamine, floods it into your system. And the state that I knew about, which is fight or flight, everyone's heard of, I'd never heard of the opposite until I met Catherine, which is rest and digest. And so by pretending gratitude well enough that it goes into your body, you, and if you've just tried this uh, and you can feel that slight warmth, we've just got high together, which is pretty cool. Um, (laughs) But it also means that's a trigger. This is a technique. You can override your system at any given moment. It's a hack to release your rest and digest parasympathetic nervous system. I love that. And it's yeah. so true. I do. I feel like I've had that moment of feeling good. Yeah. yeah. You know, a little bit, a little bit more buzzy. Um, yeah. So Catherine, when I think about it in our workshops, because we're looking very much at how, you know, a, a number of elements of which this is just one uh, impacts people's performance. Um, And one of the things that we hear a lot of is either people are very good at dealing with fear, uh, with dealing with this kind of confrontation or being grateful at work, but then are hopeless in their private life, Um, men actually, Um, or it's the other way around. Um, And I'm just fascinated to know why does that happen? And then as we become more stressed for whatever reason, does it become more difficult? Yeah, that's a really interesting question, actually. There's this difference between who we are at home and sort of at work. And I mean, the first answer is that some people have very, very different psychological profiles at work, at home, and some people don't. Some people stay the same. Some people have very different profiles on social media, as I think we've all noticed uh, as as well. Yes, for good or bad. Yes. For good or bad. You know, and as we just explored with that sort of radical gratitude exercise, you know, our fear response, it's, it's in the amygdala in the, in the center of the brain. Once that overwhelms us, it distorts our thinking. Um, and there's various reasons why it differs at work and at home. And one is our different sort of uh, personalities. One is different pressures and the different pressures we put on ourselves in those different spaces. You know, we found that one huge driver of anxiety, uh, well, I mean, uncertainty is itself, the greatest driver of anxiety but within that was this fear of failure and I think that can show up differently at work as well as home Um, and I think also you know we act out from fear in different ways uh, and and sometimes that is different at home it's what we call safety behaviors you know you get into a fight with your partner you grab a glass of wine to soothe ourselves to get that dopamine response and at work it can be very insidious it can be calling lots of meetings for no reason, burying yourself, looking busy, burying yourself in your inbox. So I think people's sort of appraisal of how they're dealing with anxiety at work at home. And, you know, like we said, I said earlier, you know, my cognitive load, my, my brain's attention is a limited resource. And when a lot of it's taken up with anxiety, I have less bandwidth. Um, so I think those are psychological reasons. I don't know if you've got anything to add from your experience sort of in the work domain as to, as to why this presents itself slightly differently for some people. 
Yeah, and I, I used to get this uh, a lot from other uh, male leaders in the space that I was in, because in Liberty, I was a bit of a conduit between a number of different spaces. And so it's it's true. And I, I've definitely heard this several times. And my reflection would be that, yes, we have a you know construct that we go and present ourselves in, but we're more likely to feel the negative impacts of uncertainty, the more exposed we feel. And uh, for a lot of male leaders that I knew, they'd gone through the classic channels, right? They'd come up through to the C-suite or they'd done a bit of an MBA or, you know, so everything had primed them for how to present at work. And you know how to present as an effective, dynamic, you know, forward thinking, you know, we know the drill. Um, but that doesn't allow you very well to know how to navigate in times of uncertainty. So as we went into the pandemic, I got so many requests for help from people who were out of their, really out of their comfort zone, because how on earth did you say, I don't know what to do? How the fuck do you say that in a way that people are supposed to follow you and lead you when we're supposed to be able to articulate a clear vision? It wasn't a time for clear visions. And in a similar way, sometimes the more personal realm where we do need to navigate with emotions and feelings, and that hasn't been part of the lexicon or, or the journey of some men, or you know, generalizations aside. Mm. And, and so I feel more uncomfortable and more exposed here. And one of the, um, the, the journeys of uncertainty experts that taught me a lot about this a woman called Dr. Vivian Ming, who started out life as a man uh, and never found his feet, right? A hugely intelligent guy, went to Stanford, MIT, all sorts of things, but ended up homeless in his car with a gun in the, in the glove compartment, counting the days down to take his own life. Um, an intervention was made, kind of got himself back up and running, uh, was getting married and was finally able in that place of security to admit to his then fiance that the true uncertainty he needed to go through was these feelings he had around gender transition. And with her support, went through it. Now as a woman, Dr. Vivian Ming has stepped into her own place, found her identity as one of the world's leading computational neuroscientists. And she speaks about the, you know, it is incredibly hard to prove to yourself the benefits of, of teaching ourselves that uncertainty is good for us, but that is what we have to do. She argues there's no, there's no, there's no greater determiner of longer term life outcomes or the symptomatic of human success than our ability to creatively deal with the unknown. And, and one of the best ways she advocates for this is something she calls counter, counterintuitive exemplars or, or basically kind of violating your stereotypes. So if you want to get good at something, so this goes back to that, that specific point, if there are leaders, male or female, who, who know that whether it's personal circumstances or work circumstances, make them less comfortable. The way to get good at it is to spend time with people who make you feel uncomfortable that are good in that space. And that is something that none of us automatically do. We automatically surround ourselves with people who look like us, sound like us, and tell us that we're great. And hanging around with people who make you feel on edge, but you admire aspects of what they do. And it's that process of osmosis and beginning to see, that, oh my God, yeah, constantly spending time out on the edge here makes you really creative, which makes me anxious. But over time, you begin to absorb. And the interesting part of it all, you begin to create new pathways, which then leads to the new decision-making process. And all the stuff that is happening on autopilot internally anyway, begins to become within your control. Uh, that's really interesting, Sam. And, and, I, and I completely follow that. But I wonder whether in addition, or is this different, Catherine, um, that people's memory of uncertainty is different. And what I mean by that is, so I'm a, I am an absolute half glass full person. So when I look back on my life, you know, I'm like, oh, oyster catches. Oh, yeah, that was really great, wasn't it? And then I talk to my business partner. He rem he says, yeah, but don't you remember those terrible times? And I'm like, oh, oh yeah, yeah, they were a bit shit. But and, um, you know, I, I talk about 
couple of times when I've had cancer and I, you know, there's a moment when I was in hospital a couple of years ago and, you know, I'm like, it was fine. I mean, it, you know, it was there was a moment that was a little bit scary. Now for me, that's gone. A friend of mine, we were talking about the other day and he went, yeah, but I still think about this. I keep, keep thinking about the moment where I thought you were going to die. And I'm like, yeah, but I didn't, you know, it was fine. And I wonder whether, is there an element of uncertainty that one you do get used to? And I, and I absolutely get your point about put some people around you who, who push you and challenge you, but also do we need to help ourselves kind of forget that feeling of fear, that feeling of not being able to do things, Catherine, because we're so worried about stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think what you really identified is our, our, our sort of terrible human ability for bias, you know, which does play into memories as well. And it is, again, it's another safety mechanism in our, in our brain. I mean, our, our negativity bias is hardwired into us as a default shortcut to keep us safe, you know, to the point, I think there was a National Science Foundation study that, that showed that um, 85% of our thoughts every day are negative. 95% of our worries are the same as the day before, but only about one to 3% ever come true. And for most people, 0% come true. And those who do get through it better than expected or feel they've learned something. You know, and there is this, um, a negativity bias does mean we focus on negative memories, negative incidents, negative future possibilities. We hyper-focus on them. Some people have can go the other way and have a positivity bias as well because they have this need to, to believe that everything's going to be okay. And actually one of the, the areas we work through in the Uncertainty Experts is addressing this and, and getting people to, to recognize and understand that this heightens in time of uncertainty or can heighten. But actually what you want to do is be able to come back to a place of what we call sort of practical realism, which is a middle ground where you can hold space for doubt. You're not saying that everything, you know, is definitely going to be okay. And I think as much leaves especially there has been this sort of perhaps culture of toxic positivity that has sort of become ingrained where where you don't say that things might not be okay but on the same same time recognize that that we do often veer off into negativity bias you know there are lots of ways you can just recognize that reframe that you know write things down to actually you know cognitively restructure the way you think and over time that becomes more of a default um you know and and that's what we're trying to work towards yeah so sam um at the uncertainty experts, because I think one of the things that I find fascinating, particularly with the work we do, and I, and I guess it will be similar with you, is so often, particularly senior leaders, they will say, you know, I recognise that if we can tap into how people feel generally, and we call it their well-being, but, you know, it's that it's the kind of seven needs space, um, they will perform better. But I'm sort of excluded from this. And then they begin some work and they go, do you know what? I've sort of stuck my head in the sand on this. And actually, if I do something for myself, it will benefit me as a leader, but it will also benefit my team. Sam, do you find that there are certain leaders that um, get this perhaps academically, but don't want to push themselves in it. And you sort of have to do something to get them to admit that they feel uncertain and then actually to positively embrace the kind of work you're doing in order to be able to, to get to that moment of going, do you know what? I can be a better leader. I can be a better person by admitting truly and deeply that I am uncertain about these things. Hell yeah. I really do. And I think there is this very disturbing and difficult place at the, the most senior level of our businesses where there is real fear. And I think that the more dangerous fear is unrecognized fear. Yes. Um, 
because you see these interesting things like you know so uncertainty to low uncertainty tolerance plays out in a, in a business environment in all manner of ways um a low uncertainty tolerance among senior leaders means they're more likely to go to a rush decision you know but we'll cover that up as decisiveness yes. you know low uncertainty tolerance in a team means you're more likely to de- defer to the most senior man in the room but you know we'll just we'll, we'll, we'll cover that up in all manner of other business semantics for the last 10 years or so uh, there's been a, an increasing kind of narrative for me. A group of predominantly white men at the tops of uh, business are being called to the greatest radical change of their life, whether it be the, the technology that's pushing for it, the need for addressing diversity, mental health, you know, shifts that have never been there in their entire lifetime, in their whole career. And now they need to make decisions, investments, you know, on stuff that they've they struggled with, to be honest, because after a certain period of life, right, if there's not new information, it becomes harder and harder to absorb. And now on the hot, hot on the heels of that, they've gone through pandemic and then there's the imminent uh, huge upheaval of climate change. So you're asking a group of people who are closer to what has been the preordained idea of success, i.e., you know, they're heading towards retirement age with a very decent package, right? Since day one, that's been what success has been required. Now the expectation on them is to make huge investments in technology that doesn't exist yet to meet targets that have already been missed. Like if you're talking about it on a climate level, right? There is no, you know, or even to get close to equality, you know, the, the things that need to be achieved, what's the prediction of, 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 of wage equality 200 years until we get there? So the, the radical upheaval in a world that has always been about creating certainty. So I have some empathy because I've heard it and there are individuals who find it very hard to reach out on, on these topics. And there are, of course, those within those individuals who are embracing radical change. But there are a few who are like, really? What? Not on my watch, mate. I'm so close to the idea of success. It's an incredibly hard process to go through. So we are expecting an offer. And I think that's why we're trying to present a new set of tools. And, and the senior leader, we've run this with a few C-suites. And the sense of relief people have got uh, is great because... We talk about fear, everyone gets that. And very often the response has been over the last few years, people want, right, we want courage, bravery, let's get everyone there. Enough time of this confusion, we want clarity and a plan. And yet we know we've been feeling a bit stuck, but we want momentum. The, the, the line I've heard more than any other, we need to get this business back in the fifth gear. And if you're scared, being told to get courageous just doesn't work. It's going to you know, break you. And if you are confused to get clear with something, that's when you end up making a bad strategy. And if you're stuck being told to get momentum into fifth gear, that's when you break you. So what we've found through the work, and this is just on the responses that we've had, and, and when we began testing it and, and road testing, it, I was doing it predominantly in leadership spaces. Um, people do, they can reframe fear as a driver towards action. Can't get rid of it. You can't deny it or really diminish it, but you can accept and tolerate that, that fear is something you can work with and it can push you forward. That much people believe with. Uh, and in the same sense, you know, you whilst you can't necessarily escape the fog of, of, of uncertainty, you can begin to reframe it as a space for creativity, for trying out new things. And in that space of like stasis, whilst you can't just push someone to, to, to get started again, when you can reconnect with others, you can connect with yourself, you can connect with those other ways that you made decisions. We, we found that people were able to regain some sense of momentum. So it's only by process of it being a very live experiment, of it being a very honest and open experiment, that the responses we've had from people, particularly in leadership, is, is those have been the pathways that we've been able to find in the space. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah, I can. Uh, that's so interesting. I think your your thought about and it's so obvious, isn't it? You know, we've got we have got so many middle aged pushing retirement white men 
um, through no fault of their own. It's just, it is the stats. That is what we see. And it's exactly the same challenge that we have. And in some ways, you know, there are people like Paul Pomeroy, the chief executive of McDonald's, who could not be more brilliant at looking at all these sorts of things and leading a business forward. But I think they're still an exception. And I think to your point, there are some brilliant leaders, but there's many, many, many more that are sitting there. Um, and a bit like the challenge around, I think, um, diversity, we're going to have to wait for another generation for it to really, really make a difference. Um, and I wonder, Catherine, whether, you know, from a from a scientific point of view, because I think for me, you know, and I loved your point at the beginning, Sam, where you said, you know, all the paths kind of come together. For me, doing the work I do now, I have never felt more fulfilled. I have never had better feedback from all the work, all the businesses I've run. And it has never been more difficult to show businesses, even when you go, look, this is the difference that it makes, to show people that it makes a fundamental difference to the way people perform in a way that, you know, if you change just a little bit of ways of working or you spend a bit of money on a bit more training of business stuff makes fuck all difference. This is radical change. Um, and I wonder, Catherine, is, is that, is it because it's hard for leaders to, to even emotionally take the risk of investing time and money and effort into this sort of work rather than the stuff that they know about? Yeah, I mean, I think on a very, very human basis, you know, there are these two states. There's this, the, the part of our brain that wants to believe that everything is certain and we can make these predictions and everything is fine. You ladder that up from one human to many, to leaders, to people in position of power. And you can see how sort of an individual who might like to sit in that realm where they're uncomfortable with uncertainty and trying to make everything certain, then suddenly if that person is in a position of power or a leader, how that distorts their behavior or drives their behavior. And then you have the other mode of our brains, which is embracing uncertainty, seeing it's a tool for possibility, but that's hard because it means you have to learn how to control fear you have to admit to doubt you have to challenge yourself in that state to, to consider yourself wrong and try and update your models of the world by going as far out as you can to people as unlike you as possible you know and you have to be be willing to do that and hold that space and that's not and, and you know admit we might fail and that's not necessarily the traditional ideas of leadership that we have you know so I think we and, and, you know, this research has shown that we are all capable of that change, every single one of us. And so the hope is if we really can start to, you know, embrace uncertainty, which, you know, it's amazing how suddenly everyone's talking about uncertainty. When we started this, no one quite recognised it as this sort of, you know, driver of anxiety that sits underneath. And hopefully that that change, that acceptance of, of uncertainty and the way we need to approach it will then, you know, it ladders into people's home life, but then their work life. And then that ladders up. Um, and that, I believe, is, is how we really can change our yeah. collective perspective on this. Yeah, I can, I can absolutely see that. So, Sam, on uh, May the 19th at the Power Up Festival, what are you two going to be talking about? We are going to make the passionate case that the best tool that we've got is not what we've, what we've thought of. The, the kind of business toolkit for uncertainty has mainly revolved around risk which is a mistake because risk isn't based on known variables and mathematics probabilities. So it's never going to take you to somewhere new. Um, it's been based on resilience, which is useful, essential, but potentially problematic because often resilience puts the responsibility for organizational strength on the individual at times. And also if resilience is getting good at taking the blows, but now we know that this is going to carry on for quite some time. It needs evolution. 
And then there's like, you know, the kind of classic management consultancy nonsense acronyms of VUCA and whatever else. And we're going to push, you know, the reason why that doesn't work is the U of uncertainty is a feeling. And we are going to make the case that the update to all of this is uncertainty tolerance and demonstrate up to the minute research that proves that uncertainty tolerance leads to better decision-making, more collaboration, an ability to sit with people you disagree with, with open-ended ideas. It is the skill set for the place that we want to go to. And we're going to introduce you to one or two of the uncertainty experts who make this case you know, even stronger. And Catherine will present the science as to how it's possible to increase our uncertainty tolerance. And in the spirit of it being a reset, yes, all of this is hard, but we all know those experiences we've had in the life when you do suddenly get a reset and then you view life differently. And that is what the opportunity of re-understanding what uncertainty tolerance can do for us all really is. And Catherine, um, as the scientist there, what what can people expect from you uh, at the session? Well, we're going to go a bit into sort of understanding the brain, but you know, hopefully in a way that will actually get you excited about the tool that you have. And you know, everything the science I study is always about applying it to everyday life. So we'll be going through sort of tips and techniques and things that you can actively do to help you use your your brain as this master tool it is and your body as well because your brain and your body are completely interlinked as, as we'll go through so really you know these it's not just a sort of um change of perspective it's a toolkit a skill set that we really can teach people to help them just increase their uncertainty tolerance that's great i love that and, and you're so right is the brain and the body so one of the things i'm quite excited about apart from having you guys there and some other brilliant leaders is we've got a choir we've got a choir coming to sing uh, and we've got a guy who leads this choir Richard and he's going to help everyone sing who's there on the day so even if people think they can't sing they can have a chance at singing um Sam you know this podcast is called Reset uh is there a particular reset in your life that has led you to be where you are now uh as the as the founder of um with Catherine of the uncertainty experts um yeah I think my my experience of liberty and this speaks to the original kind of thing that came up at the beginning where we did get quite deep. I spent the first, you know, Liberty was really successful. We won all these kind of accolades and I'd always be asking, you know, why did you do this? Why did you set it up, help all these kids? And the truth, every time I was asked that question, I felt a bit of a chance, uh, you know, fraud, because I didn't really know. And I'd make up these like wild stories about, you know, wanting to change the world. It was only in the second part, once I was into therapy and I was like, my life was changing. I wanted to settle a bit more. I realised I was trying to put something right in myself. And the experience of liberty. I've never learned more in my life than I did from those kids. Most of the ones I worked with were from pretty challenging backgrounds, had been in and out of the legal system or in gangs. And, you know, that whole idea that I've, you know, I've gone, I didn't do very well in education, but I went back to Cranfield, tried, you know, I'm try, I, I tried to amass like formal learning and business experience, whilst at the time this, this completely other current came along. And I am so grateful for that experience because like in terms of privilege, I have all the privilege that a 45 year old white man born in London has. But I also have this other privilege that I genuinely got to see the world by spending so much time up close with kids going through court systems and houses. And I, I've got to view the world differently with a great level of empathy. And it comes to this work now. I never would have thought of helping leaders through uncertainty by getting them to see through the eyes of a refugee or a prisoner of war. You know, those kids permanently reset my view on the world and you know even now liberty is about to be 21 years old i'm gonna have a huge celebration and yes the organization achieved much but even the further i reflect on it we set out to try and change those kids lives and they changed mine way more than i think i ever changed any of theirs wow 
That's uh, gosh. You know, when I hear people like that, I think, gosh, what have I done with my life? I've been not doing enough. Um, thank you for that. Um, Catherine, what about you? What resets made the biggest difference for you? Just an interesting question. I think if I look back on my life, I think I have sort of almost become addicted in my life to resets. You know, by the time I was 16, I'd, I'd lived in eight different houses in 13, you know, three different countries. I you know, I kept doing different sciences and I did three different masters and then I went to drama school and then I came back and and in a way it was sort of, you know, it was almost problematic. And it was only in my 30s that I realised I needed to, every time I thought I started at the beginning again, you know, I, I would move house every, every year. Um, and it was about finding a place for me where I could build things, I could find a stability, I could find a, a red thread in, in what I did, which was always exploring the human mind and bringing that insight out to inspire people in, in the real world. But also acknowledge that, you know, whilst I used to absolutely dream of, of people who, who lived in a, one house their whole lives and things like that, really recognise the privilege of continuously being in very different situations with very different people and how that made me be open-minded to different perspectives and and sort of um, different objectives and different points of view and so hopefully now I'm in this position where I can bring both those things together build my own stability in my own work but recognize the joy and the privilege of continuously being thrown into a new situation where you have to sort of see things from different angles mm. yeah gosh and that wow living all those different countries and houses that's uh, that's extraordinary wow you know when when I've when my parents have lived in two houses I think the whole life um that's quite a big thing isn't it uh, well, I you was didn't, really. You didn't mention living in the jungle or, or ending up gone. <laughs> yeah, I, I, really, I thought you were going to go for it then. There's, a, there's, oh, there's another yeah, depth yeah. to that chapter. <laughs> yeah, well, <in> jungle. <laughs> do you know what? I mean, I, I just listening to both of you. I think we could do a whole episode with each of you, just talking about you know everything you've got to to get to where you are. And I have so many more questions, but we are we're out of time. Um, I was really looking forward to your session on May the 19th. I'm now looking forward to even more. Um, and I'm definitely going to learn some things. I'm going to bring my pen along in case I need that again. Um, but but actually, thank you for being really open and talking about some of the things that have impacted you to get you to this place. Because I think having spoken to one, I know that the podcasts that work best are where people open up and talk a little bit about themselves, because that's what people want to hear. Um, but I think also you are real experts in an area that is hard for us. You know, feeling uncertain is hard and knowing what to do about it other than, you know, as you say, change job, change life, change partner. It's so much easier in some ways to do a radical thing than actually do something that really gets to the, the nub of what you're doing and not only that but then use that feeling to be really positive so thank you both so much for spending time with me today and i can't wait uh, for the next session absolutely thank pleasure. you thanks very much cheers bye thanks for listening if you've enjoyed reset the podcast i'd love it if you would forward it to your work colleagues friends and family Reset the Podcast is a Let's Reset and Advertising Week global production. Executive producer is Richard Larson, with me, Suki Thompson. Thanks to our sponsor, Liars Non-Alcoholic Spirits, and voiceover artist, Talitha Penny. Music provided by Audio Network.